0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. At the end of the Second World War, about 600,000 Japanese soldiers were taken prisoner after the Soviet Union sweeps through Manchuria in the very final days of the war. Separating them to Japan, the Soviet Union held them in prison camps in the Russian Far East for over a decade, with the last group released in 1956, 11 years after the Japanese surrender. Those 11 years are the subject of 11 winters of discontent. The Siberian Interment and the Making of a New Japan by Dr. Shirzad Mumanov and held by Harvard University Press. The book tells the story of the Japanese prisoners, how they were captured, their time in the camps, and how they tried to acclimatize to Japan after their release. Shirzad Mumanov is a lecturer in Japanese history at the University of East Anglia and winner of the inaugural Murayama Suneo Memorial Prize. He is a historian of transnational and international processes in East Asia and Eurasia, whose primary research deals with Japan's makings of the modern Nation from the Meiji Restoration of 1868 to the present day, through the rise and fall of the Japanese Empire and its remaking as a nation state following defeat in World War II. We're joined today by fellow New Books Network host Shatrughan J Mall. Shatrughan J, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, and it's a, it's a great delight to be here with you and Sherzod today. My name is Shatranjay uh, and I'm a PhD student um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, specializing in transnational Asian history. Um, and you can find some more of my interviews on the New Books Network uh, website.
0: Today, the three of us will talk about the experience of the Japanese prisoners of war in the Soviet Union their life in the camps, how they handled their return to Japan, and how the experience has the today for Japan and its relations with Russia. So, Shirza, thank you so much for joining me and Sachin Day today on the Asian Review Books podcast. Perhaps it's best to start at the beginning. What happened at this very end of the Second World War around the Russian invasion of Manchuria and how and why did the Soviet Union take so many Japanese prisoners?
2: Thank you, Nicholas and Shatrinje, great to be here. Um, what happened is still not known very well, uh, partly because of some of the archives that would tell the story, the background story, are not yet available to historians, even to Russian historians. Those archives are kept in Moscow, we think. And um, it all starts with the Soviet Union's entry into the war against Japan, on the 8th uh, of August, uh, Moscow time, 9th of August, Tokyo time, 1945. And uh, in a well-known story, the Soviet, three Soviet armies enter Manchuria, which Manchukuo, which was the puppet kingdom ruled by the Japanese at the time from three directions. And they just go very quickly, advance very quickly, um, astonishingly um, quickly, I would say. And they... Basically, defeat. Uh, they vaunted the very uh, famous Kwantung Army uh, with little effort. You know, they they do lose some soldiers, they do lose some machinery, but it isn't relatively easy victory for them. It's a very tragic event, obviously, um, the Manchurian Strategic Offensive Operation, as the Soviets called it, and. Uh, it is also quite well known um, as August Storm, especially in the English language, uh, mainly owing to uh, historian, military historian David Glantz, who who wrote a book uh, titled August Storm, and it was nothing short of a storm because you know usually military historians might might focus on the movements of troops, on um, you know specificities of weaponry, um, uh, you know casualties, etc. But there's also a human side, a civilian side to the story, uh, because what happened in Manchuria was actually quite important, at least for Japan, in the sense that it left behind long lasting traumatic memories and shaped post war Japanese perceptions of the USSR, perhaps like no other event, because um, Manchukuo, as you well know, was the so called safe haven of the Japanese Empire. Um, 2.7 million japanese uh, soldiers and civilians were there at the time of the soviet entry so that is almost half of all japanese uh, abroad uh, who were you know who went out to build to expand the japanese empire and the the, uh, the soviet entry was not only a story of the, of the soldiers it was also a soldier uh, it was also excuse me a story of the civilians who were caught up in this storm um, however, one aspect of, um, this history that initially drew me into this was that the, the tales of the soldiers specifically are not very well known in Japan, at least the end of, uh, Japanese empire in Northeast Asia, the end of the so-called Manchu quo, um, is usually told still, uh, In in popular imagination, through civilian stories, stories of women escaping with their children in tow, of um, civilians marching hundreds of kilometers trying to uh, stay away from the enemy that is quite ruthless, that uh, looted, uh, plundered, that raped, that was made up. uh, The the Soviet troops were made up of um, soldiers who had actually spent years. Um, in the past, the previous years in fighting the European Nazi armies, uh, the Axis armies, Nazi army, Nazi Germany and its allies, and who had been actually through a lot of hardship and who dealt with the Japanese population, which least expected uh, a Soviet invasion, uh, especially the civilians did not expect this invasion, uh, in in quite ruthless ways. So uh, out of this August storm, grew out the Siberian internment, and it happened when the Soviets disarmed um, the Kwantung Army soldiers. Um, I'm I'm mostly, of of course, talking about Manchukuo, but we shouldn't forget that it wasn't just um, in Manchukuo. Um, There was also the colony of southern Sakhalin, the so-called Karafto, uh, Minami Karafto in Japanese, uh, where there were Japanese civilians and soldiers, and the Kuril Islands. Uh, So in these territories, the Soviets quickly defeated and disarmed the Japanese soldiers. Initially, there was no indication that the Soviets would take anybody to the Soviet Union. Um, and it, it all changes very quickly within a, a matter of uh, days. Uh, on the 16th of August, we have a document uh, from the Soviet uh, archives that that, that says there, there are no plans to take any Japanese POWs to the Soviet Union. But exactly a week later, on the 23rd of August, Stalin signs his um, infamous order 9898SS. That was the number of the order, in which he uh, orders to take 500,000 Japanese fit to work uh, in the conditions of Siberia and the Far East and to transport them to the Soviet Union. So that is my long introduction into the start of the Siberian internment. That is how. Initially 500,000, but then at the end of the event uh, over 600,000 Japanese would pass through Soviet camps um, starting from 1945 and ending in 1956. Although the majority would be returned to Japan um, by the end of 1949.
0: There's a phrase you said that's actually a really good segue to my next question. The idea that bringing people that, that were fit to work um, and you know we we think about camps in Siberia, and the image is automatically one of the gulags, right? The the labor camps for Soviet dissidents. Obviously, the Japanese POW camps had differences to those. They are different. Um, they were different from other POW camps for other um, for other uh, soldiers from the Axis, the German POWs, etc. Um, what were the Japanese internment camps like? Did they have any? other purposes, additional purposes um, that made them different from the gulags or the POW camps for German prisoners of war?
2: That's a great question. Thank you. I think it's very important to locate the Japanese experiences in the broader uh, system of camps, or I should probably say systems of Soviet camps. And I will give you some detail in, in trying to maybe convey the diversity of camps but also the experiences in each of those camps or camp types uh, because it's important to understand japanese experience compared to or within the larger broader setting of of um soviet union its labor camps at the end of the second world war and that's one of the contexts one of the big settings that i locate the whole japanese experience in the book uh, the other two i if i have a chance i'll tell you more about them so um as I said, there was a great diversity of camps and of experiences in them. Camps varied both horizontally, that basically no single camp was like another camp, and also vertically because they were different um, size camps or different camps with different levels. So they were larger camp complexes with sometimes tens of camp units in them they were isolated small camp units uh, geographically located a little bit farther from let's say lines of communication Um, and the number of inmates varied wildly depending not only on camp size but the season geographical location industry to which each camp was attached um, any number of other factors uh One big distinction I have to make, however, is the distinction between the so-called gulag, big letter, big G gulag, and uh, the camps in which foreign POWs were kept. Because some works, especially in English language, use the word gulag, the big letter gulag, when talking about the Japanese captivity in the USSR. So you often hear, oh, the Japanese were in the gulag. Um, So that is not very accurate. If you Intend to use a small letter gulag which is a general term that means a a labor camp then that would be okay because camps in which the japanese were interned were also forced labor camps and at least from the outside they looked a lot like a typical soviet labor camp Um, however technically uh, and i'm being very pedantic here the camps for foreign pow's of which the japanese became the second largest group after the germans were not under the Gulag directorate. So, you know, th- the word Gulag is quite confusing in English because you have the big letter Gulag, which originates from the name of the directorate that looked after all these camps. And you have the small letter Gulag, which is equivalent to the word camp. Um, so th- the Japanese POWs, the Germans, Hungarians, Romanians, Italians, Austrians, and many other former Axis army uh, prisoners of war who ended up in the Soviet Union in captivity after the war were in camps which was run by a different directorate. So it was a sister directorate, you can call it, to Gulag um, because it was built in the image and likeness of the Gulag using the experience and resources, often human resources, that, um, that were Used in, in building the Gulag itself, starting from the late 1920s. Uh, however, despite these similarities or outside similarities, that you could look at a camp and you, you would probably not be able to tell the difference, uh, the camp system for POWs, which was actually the directorate is called Chief Directorate for POWs and Internees. It's a bit long, and I abbreviated in the book as GUPVI, Gupvi in Russian. Uh, so those camps were, I, I uh, argue, qualitatively different from what we know as the Gulag. Um, the image of the Japanese toiling away in the same conditions as the Soviet political prisoners, uh, while not inac- not inaccurate in all cases, would therefore be somewhat misleading, because both the treatment um, and the conditions. And the outcomes, expected outcomes for the GULPV camps were different from the ones of the GULAG for the Soviet inmates. And what makes them different? Um, If I can give you a very simple answer, the uh, foreign POWs were an asset for the Soviet Union, not only in the labor that they gave to the Soviet Union, not so much, I would say, in the labor that they provided to the uh, war-ravaged economy. And that labor was important. We have to acknowledge this. They were an important labor source, despite the fact that economically, and it, or at least in monetary terms, it was very difficult to justify um, the keep, uh, upkeep of these foreigners. Uh, still, Soviet Union needed hands. You know, it had lost 27 million uh, to the war. And uh, with the primitive methods, with the primitive equipment that was available in rebuilding the, um, especially the scarcely populated Eastern regions of, of the nation, um, those hands were quite quite necessary. However, the, the another big uh, incentive for the Soviets to try and hold on to these uh, captives, I argue, was the um, their utility for the Soviet interests and goals once they returned to their home countries. And as I I listed some of the nationalities, specifically, of course, those interests were tied to Soviet um, plans for Eastern Europe, for for Europe. Japan came into the picture quite late. The Japanese were the last to enter the uh, Gupuvi camp system. But once again, I'm speculating here, but this is an educated guess. For Stalin, keeping some Japanese using them as forced labor in the meantime with a hope or an expectation that at some point they might uh, become useful in advancing Soviet goals or at least, if those goals fail, in at least um, serving as agents of destabilization because we know that Soviet foreign policy goals or Soviet foreign policy methods often involved uh, where it wasn't possible to to make a proactive or or a... Or a uh, positive uh, action involve a certain influence uh, through soft power. Then, at least last resort was to try and destabilize the situation as much as possible. So, um, in the book, I try to sh- to give examples of how um, these foreign POWs—German, Austrian, Japanese, Italian—were. Uh, for the Soviet officials, the political officers especially were an especially important asset as future potential uh, ambassadors of the Soviet Union. Uh, people who have experienced the Soviet life or the Soviet system, the Soviet organization of both the economy and society, and who could say a good word about the Soviet Union when they return home, but also, um, if necessary, uh, use these people in 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 a slightly different way in in maybe taking the soviet union's corner in what the soviet officials expected to be battles uh, not only not battles in the in the uh, you know uh, not physical battles maybe but battles ideological uh, in the forthcoming upcoming uh, cold war
0: and that's another great segue to my next question and then after this I'll hand over to to Shatranje but the idea that this was going to be kind of a, a new—I'm um, going to use the word training ground. I know that's kind of the wrong word. But the kind of, an ideological kind of training ground for this, for, for, for this ideological battle. Um, you mentioned examples in your stories, people getting involved in, like, the camp newsletter and using that to kind of share communist ideas, the hope that these guys would bring communism back to Japan. Um, did any of it work, I guess, in short? Mm.
2: Um, thank you. Yeah, it's a complex question and I will try to give a complex nuanced answer to it uh, simply because what we know from sources can be misleading for various reasons. You know, on the Soviet side, we have the Soviet archives uh, and the most common document that I used, for example, in assessing the success of the Soviet so-called uh, propaganda education program is mainly reports, reports written by regional political offices, sometimes political offices of one camp, um, but those usually don't really go so high up to end up in in a central archive. Usually you would have a regional political chief, let's say, of the Khabarovsk territory, who is, uh, who is responsible for re-educating these Japanese, who is responsible for providing not only the ideological message, but also the material support. And when you read those reports in the archives, uh, they are quite, you know, and let's not forget, Soviet Union was a report nation, report economy. Uh, what was in the report was often more important than what was in life. Uh, they are they report widespread enthusiasm for the propaganda message. They they sometimes even cite the number of questions asked at a discussion or reading club. They, they sometimes, um, word for word, recount the fiery speeches delivered by selected uh, Japanese or German POWs at rallies. They talk about how this, you know, the swell of popular dissent or popular indignation at the capitalists and the imperialists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Obviously, we have to take that with a pinch of salt. As we should, um, The some of the memoirs are written by the Japanese because obviously when they come back to Japan, and we will probably talk a little bit about how they reintegrated into the post-war society, which was quite anti-communist by the time they returned, they also had to uh, sometimes you know, remodel uh, their experiences uh in 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 a way to uh, not necessarily to pander to what 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 is uh, popular in Japan at the time, but at least to emphasize some bits and to not emphasize other bits. So um, that's that's the complexity of of working with these sources. Um, that's why it's really important to keep in mind the bigger bigger context. Um, so the other thing to consider probably is is what what we call oppor- what you could call probably opportunists you know people who played along with the propaganda message with the propaganda program people who acted as if they are buying it uh, while their fellow POWs disdained them you know we shouldn't forget that it's probably easy to criticize someone from a distance and safety of post-war Japan and someone who was trapped in enemy hands and wasn't even sure if they would be able to return at all. So when when they were captured, they they just didn't have any information. This created huge uncertainty and acted as a psychological incentive or psychological compelled these people to maybe cooperate as much as possible. Let's not forget this is a forced labor camp. This is this is a big number of people kept by a former enemy. Uh, with, you know, convoys and guards with automatic rifles, these people are kept not always, but in most cases within uh, barbed wire. Um, so that kind of atmosphere, that intimidation also works along with the the, the carrot of of that the Soviets very effectively used. If you went along with the message, you would probably get easier work, especially if you became an activist and, and you acted as this liaison or as this link between, on one hand, the Soviet political officers and the camp chiefs, and on the other hand, the POW body. And if you did your job well, and if you, especially if you came from a peasant family, you had a, the right class background if you had had a brush with Marxism during your student years, um, like Asahara Seki, I, I mention his story quite quite a lot in the book. And um, if you are willing to then you know put in your energies, and let's not forget, not all of these people or few of these people were actually opportunists. Many of the people actually did this because they believed in it. Um, then you would get early repatriation, then you would have other incentives, then you would have bigger rations, etc., etc. So um, all of these nuances and all of these uh, difficulties of judging should still not stop us from uh, concluding that a small number of people were actually converted into uh, communism during their stay in the Soviet Union. And that became evident, Quickly, uh, many of the people who had even played along, because they wanted to stay alive to return home. Let's not forget, many of these people are young, unmarried men. Um, and um, the moment they left, the moment they left the jurisdiction of the Soviet um, Union and 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 the reach of the automatic rifles, uh, the moment they stepped back onto Japan, uh, onto Japanese soil, uh, they of course returned to normal life and shed whatever associations they might have, whatever fascinations, uh, whatever interests they might have displayed in in the Soviet ideology. On the other hand, um, I wouldn't portray the propaganda education program as something that was solely uh, uh, you know, uh, passed down from above, that was uh, fully orchestrated, fully, uh, enforced and coerced operation of the evil soviet political officers who are trying to take advantage of the you know unfreedom and the uh, complete isolation in which the japanese find themselves to push their own message to them so that 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 was far from from reality in the book i portray this the democratic movement which is the word that which is the phrase with which the Japanese call the uh, Propaganda Education Program, was more of a collaborative, cooperative effort uh, by a group of Japanese and the Soviets. And um, in many ways, you could probably say that there was interest on the side of the Japanese to question um, the ideology with which they had fought over the past however many years during the war Um, and the class warfare that started in the camps obviously encouraged by the Soviets uh, but not solely um, started by the Soviets themselves was a result also of the ongoing existing divisions in the Imperial Japanese Army you know you go back to you read anything about what what was going on in the Imperial Japanese Army And the first thing you notice is the tyranny, the the tyranny of the officer class, the exploitation, the the brutality of being a Japanese conscript or a non-com, the physical um, aspect of it, the beatings, regular beatings, the injustice. um, And that kind of background becomes very fertile ground on which the Soviets can actually sow the seeds of division and dissent uh, by enabling a group of very indignant, very uh, unhappy people, not necessarily sympathetic to communism, and I should emphasize this uh, very much, um, to stand up to, to their oppressors. Of course, this plays into this uh, Soviet ethos of uh, we have been naught, we shall be all kind of way, we, we, we have all, only our chains to lose kind of uh, ideological message. But in its core... It was not necessarily always Marxist or communist. Uh, it was in response to the officer tyranny that some of the initial activists of the democratic movement um, rose up. And uh, there were several incidents. I mentioned an incident uh, by uh, in which a, a, a former professor at Tokyo Agricultural University is um, beaten to death by several officers which Asahara calls uh, the, the the straw that broke the camel's back, in which the Japanese, other Japanese, not officer-class Japanese, but also some officers um, actually saw the injustice and, and the, the unnecessary cruelty of the imperial Japanese system, the gunki, the military discipline uh, that compelled uh, people to be brutal, that basically divided the Japanese community even before they became divided by the Soviet efforts. And Soviets, of course, had had a good interest in, in further dividing them because that would enable um, a, a more effective management of, of this big group of, of POWs. So I, I, it's a long answer, I hope I've said everything, but please feel free to follow up because there's a lot uh, more to tell.
1: Thank you, Sherzad. Um, I I think I'm going to shift focus here uh, to ask you a little bit about uh, you as a historian and sort of the historical method before we come back uh, to talking about the uh, Siberian internment. Um, So I always like to ask my guests a little bit about their background. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like where did you grow up and how did you become a historian of Japanese and uh, Soviet history?
2: Thank you. Um, I was born in the Soviet Union, This is what I sometimes like to tell my students just to test their reaction on their faces. Um, I was born in Soviet Uzbekistan in 1982. So I I caught the last nine years of the Soviet Union. I have some memories, obviously not very well-defined memories as some people a little bit older than me have of of Soviet life. Um, And if you were Uzbek born in the 80s, um, and grew, growing up in the 90s you can't escape this you know this atmosphere of late soviet period in which you know shortages people queuing up for food uh but also i caught the the the, the last um period i i would say the last years of this uh, Soviet style education so i went to school in the soviet union i was i was the last generation of soviet young pioneers basically the soviet version of the scout movement we, we, we used to wear these re, uh, red uh, um, neckerchiefs um, and you know swear allegiance to to lenin and that kind of background basically formed me as it did um, most of my peers uh, from the same region or from this even from the same uh, period, not necessarily the region, because it was this uniform experience of, of uh, growing up in this late late Soviet Union. Um, and as a student, as an undergraduate, I chose Japanese. Uh, that that basically leads me to my Japanese connection, because uh, at the university we were supposed to choose a second foreign language. My first foreign language was English, and out of the array of foreign languages, I decided to choose Japanese because. A, it was different. It was not another European language. I already had Russian and uh, English uh, as a foreign language because my native language is Uzbek. So I thought, well, let me learn another language that is not European. And the only non-European language at the time available was Japanese. Um, now the the students of the same university have have a bigger choice; they can study Chinese, etc. But another reason was that we had a native speaker um, JICA volunteers, who, my my first teachers of Japanese, who were who taught Japanese at the university. So that was my kind of first interest in Japanese. My first you know, learning Hiragana and Katakana, you know, saying basic things and uh, following this i also had a chance to go and study in japan for two years which crystallized my um, interest in japan deepened also my interest in japan and crystallized my decision basically to do a phd on japanese history i was i had good teachers at tsukuba when i went where i did my uh, master's degree um, and i was told that i need to use my linguistic abilities i need to uh, use Russian and Japanese along with English, and choose a topic that I could that could benefit from that kind of linguistic uh, toolbox, if you like. And um, when I was offered a place at Cambridge, uh, th- that's where the, this topic developed and took shape. Um, up until that point, I was quite well read in the um, history of Soviet-Japanese relations in the twentieth century. Um, and I was quite aware of what was going on in in literature, especially Anglophone literature on on this subject. And the origins of this topic actually come from my perplexion, my surprise at how one topic can dominate such a big um, field as Soviet-Japanese relations for such a long time. And what i mean by to- by by that is the topic is obviously the still unresolved territorial dispute between japan and the soviet union which which is the cornerstone of of the paradigm in which soviet japanese relations are still told uh, i personally don't think it's as important you know despite the fact that uh, i mean if we set aside the latest developments for a moment overall uh, russia russia japanese relations have not really suffered much from the um, lack of of a peace treaty. And the uh, territorial um, uh, dispute is is important. It has shaped, uh, you know, understanding of Soviet-Japanese relations for many people, especially for people who are quite nationalist and who care much about, you know, let's say some right-wing groups in Japan um, who use this to channel certain other Emotions and, and agendas, but on the whole, how important are those those islands uh, in the cold sea off the coast of Hokkaido? Uh, I, I, I'm not very convinced, to be honest. So, uh, my kind of my uh, my um, surprise at the dominance of that issue led to the study of uh, something else that exists between these two nations but hasn't received enough enough um attention in in english and my initial instinct was was in uh in conversations with my uh, then um, academic supervisor professor Barack kushner at cambridge was why is nobody doing anything on this topic uh, and coincidentally somebody was doing something on that topic uh professor andrew barshe who later in 2013 published a, a very good book uh, the gods left first on the Siberian internment. Um, and that basically shows that since then the, 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 the growing interest in the empire and legacies of the empire um, also pushed me or compelled me to look into not only the internment itself, but, but the bigger context, bigger settings in which uh, through which I had to study the internment. You can't escape, let's say, the Japanese Empire. You can't escape the Cold War, uh, or or Stalin's population um, displacements. Uh, if you if you're going to study Siberian internment, but during the course of the research, you find out also that as much as uh, these these contexts are really important to understand the Siberian internment. But then in turn, Siberian internment also highlights some of the aspects of these big developments like Japan's expansion in Asia, the Japan's defeat and uh, the post-war remodeling of Japan as a nation state um, in a new light. So uh, once again, in a very long answer, I hope I, I succeeded in giving you both my personal background and the background of this book.
1: Absolutely. Uh, thank you. And I think you were very well placed uh, to do this research, given your multilingual background. So I'm very happy for the field of Japanese studies that you became, uh, that you studied Japanese and became a historian of uh, Japan. Um, so related to that, um, I also had another question about um, sort of doing this sort of research. Um, so major contribution of your book uh, is its use of a multilingual archive uh, in in both Russian and Japanese, which helps piece together uh, the transnational history of the Siberian internment. So could you tell us a little bit about the research process? What archives did you use and where did you do your research?
2: Thank you. Great question. Um, Indeed, this is one of the episodes in history, and there are plenty of these, um, which you cannot fully or comprehensively uh, research and interpret using only sources from one place, let's say one nation, or in one language. And uh, my original idea, once again, going back to the initial discussions that I mentioned, in which I decided to look a little bit deeper into this issue, was the Russian side, the Russian archives are completely missing from the story despite the fact that Russian archives had been open by that time for about 20 years. So we're talking about 2011, 2012, when I started this uh, doctoral uh, research. Um, and I was lucky to be selected as, um, as a participant of the so-called RATS uh, scheme. So RATS is Russian archives training scheme for British PhD students, which um, was very useful Basically, a group of PhD students are taken to Moscow and walked through the process of working in Russian archives one by one, not only the archives, but also the the big library, um, the Russian state library and the historical library. And that was the beginning of my, um, you know, it was guided uh, tour, um, so to say but that was the, my first experience, after which I, I paid several other visits um, to the archives, and every time I went to, to the archives, primarily the State Archive of, of the Russian Federation, what we call Garf, and uh, the Russian State Archive of Sociopolitical History, uh, which used to be the uh, archive of the Communist Party. Uh, Comintern archives are also there, for those interested. Um, the Institute of Marxism, Len- Leninism archives, etc. So... Um, Every time I went to Russia, I would find more than I could handle in terms of the number of um, sources. Of course, due to the limitations of time, living in Moscow as a graduate student is very expensive, so you, you have to really pace yourself. You have to plan it well ahead. But even with unlimited resources, you would probably find that there is just too much stuff that is not yet made it into uh, into Anglophone scholarship. And that was a blessing for me. Um, but then I didn't really just want to limit myself to to the Soviet archives uh, because once you read the archives, there are naturally the the one um, aspect missing uh, an aspect that you really would like to have in your book, and that is the human aspect because government documents, however detailed and however, interesting and revealing they might be they they are these you know dry and cold um you know pieces of administrative documentation in most cases sometimes they're quite boring and some you have to really be patient um, so the the uh, to my luck once again um, 1980s and 1990s had seen this avalanche of literature on the siberian internment mainly in the shape of memoirs um, as you know, anybody who's studied post-war Japanese history, know, by 1980s and 1990s, many of the people who had fought in the war soldiers or civilians who had experienced the war in different places and through different experiences were quite advanced in age. And many of these were driven by this, um, very noble goal, I think of, of telling my story of, of leaving the story of my experiences behind for future generations. So, Amit, this um, this um, I, I won't say fad. It was it was quite a, a popular pastime to to write and try to publish your uh, senki mono, the war stories or war experiences. Um, a lot of Siberian internment stories came out. Not only the stories of of the survivors themselves, but also their families. Sometimes children would write, my father came back from Siberia kind of stories. And uh, several large memoir collections were were published. Um, and, and to my luck, the biggest of those, um, which was published by the, uh, which is held these days in the um, uh, Prayers for Peace um, Memorial Museum for... Uh, for soldiers and returnees from Siberia in in Tokyo, in Shinjuku. I'm I'm probably misquoting the name of the the museum, but in Japanese, it's Heiwa Kinen Tenji Shirokan. There are 19 volumes of these stories. So that's where I started. And later on, I I would find other stories. So I have these two big components of my uh, source base. On one hand, you have these very personal, very moving Often very amusing and entertaining memoirs, ranging from very short one-page uh, recollection of what the Soviet Union was to book-length memoirs. Some of some of which were bestsellers, like Takasugi Jiro's *In the Shadow of the Northern Lights*, Kage no Kageni, or Uchimura Gosuke's um, uh, *Japanese in Stalin's Prisons*. Um, so. Those two became the the initial big source base with which I tried to write the the story. But as I went along, and especially as I finished the doctoral program and tried to turn this into a book in in the um, succeeding years, I found that this issue was a lot more than just Japanese history episode. Because I went to the British archives and looking for, for other things, and I found that there was a big tranche of British documents completely unexpectedly, in which you have the story of, of for example, Japanese efforts to lobby the Soviet Union, to lobby the Allies, to put pressure on the Soviet Union to return the Japanese home. Um, and then, of course, there were the, the American archives, in addition to the big number of Russian archives. Then you have the MacArthur Memorial Archive, which I accessed in Japan, in the National Diet Library, but... Which which are the originals are held in in the U.S. Um, so there is a big and very diverse body of sources uh, that I that I used, and still there are so many things that I could not really uh, put into the book. And I felt, since this is my first book, and since this is what the first time I'm, I I have done any um, research of this kind, should I say, uh, I found this experience of working with sources perhaps the most enjoyable uh, part of of doing this research because um, every story has different sides and especially stories so complex as this one I felt should be told from as many different angles and from as many different perspectives and even the process of trying to uncover those perspectives and those angles is in itself often quite telling about how we write history, how we remember certain events, and how especially different agents or different groups, Nation is one of those agents of history writing, sometimes even tries to control and shape the ways in which that history is written and taught. So um, for me, this was a very revealing experience and rewarding
1: Absolutely. I think your uh, the way in which you sort of uh, combine like Russian sources with these memoirs and these Japanese sources really helped to sort of piece together this uh, complex history uh, of the Siberian internment uh, of the Japanese prisoners of war. Um, so moving back to talk- talking about like the specifics of the history or the legacy of uh, the Siberian internment, um, I had a question about how, Uh, the Siberian internment was received and remembered in post-war Japan. Um, So what is the reception and memory or sort of the ways in which uh, the Siberian internment was talked about in post-war Japan? What does that tell us um, about the Japanese public sphere after World War II?
2: Oh, thanks. A a great question again. uh, A very important question. I think if I were to answer it shortly, I would say uh, it depends on the period that you're looking at. Um, because the attitudes and um, the memory of the the Siberian internment, just like the attitudes to and the memory of uh, the Second World War in Japan, didn't stay the same. And in a way, I could probably say that you could see in this treatment of the Siberian internment um, the widespread attitudes, um, but also the evolution of these attitudes um, that were in the Japanese society. You could probably say mainstream views. Obviously, you can't speak for everyone. You can't speak for the whole society but you can still follow certain trends that are that become visible um so the treatment of the siberian internment in post-war memory post-war collective memory of, of the japanese society and especially in the history is probably a good barometer of how dominant views evolved in accordance both with the domestic developments the international um, events. So it would be fair, I think, to consider the attitudes um, towards the internment through um, the treatment of internees themselves, as as they were the embodiments of this experience in post-war Japan. Initially, um, in the very first years um, after the war, in which the Japanese were still in the Soviet uh, hands, um, there was... The, the, the attitude towards the internment and the internees primarily was one of compassion and worry, and understandably so, because these were the Japanese citizens, the brethren, the compatriots, Doho is the term most often used in this period, uh, who are trapped in the Soviet Union, which is a treacherous enemy that is not releasing them. And all the efforts were, as I mentioned, to push, uh, to put pressure on the Soviet Union to to release them. because by all legal and uh, uh, bilateral agreements, the Soviet Union was doing this illegally. It, it was an illegal captivity. But as the Cold War atmosphere slowly takes over in Japan, um, starting from nineteen late 1940s towards the 1950s, and as Japan more firmly more sh- and, and surely becomes an American ally and, and becomes more fixed within the orbit of... Um, post-war East Asian American uh, both security and ideological alliance then of course the attitude also changes and one of the I think one of the things that the book uh, tries to do is to show how those changes in attitude reflect not so much the internment history but the history of post-war Japanese society of, of the way in which the Japanese society was changing under the influence of uh, both external and internal factors. Um, so from the brethren who had been kept um, by force or trapped in this foreign cold land, uh, some of these people, some of the returnees, especially as the stories about the democratic movement, the stories about communist indoctrination, and possibly even military training, start to appear in Japanese media these brethren slowly turn into these suspicious potential soldiers of stalin especially after 1949 when china has uh, has been co- has become communist by that time that there are rumors in national newspapers that soviet union and soviet union has been training these japanese maybe to parachute them into japan and maybe stage an invasion obviously these were dismissed in the official documents, in the secret documents, but uh, there was an element of suspicion. And once these people returned to Japan, that suspicion was quite visible in the lives of some of them who struggled to find jobs, for example, who, who couldn't find marriage partners, and who felt that... Who felt betrayed? Because th- th- for a long, long time in 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 a cold foreign land, they had dreamed about coming back to Japan to restart uh, of restarting um, uh, lives, um, and you know, even just enjoying a bowl of miso soup, which they had missed so so badly um, in captivity, and to be greeted by this suspicion was uh, quite heartbreaking for for, for many of these people. Um, Ultimately, I think the internment was an uncomfortable memory for for post-war Japanese society, um, tied to which were memories of defeat and humiliation by a more superior uh, rival. Uh, The internees, or rather the returnees from Siberia, once they came back, were were hardly a welcome sight in post-war Japan for this very reason, uh, because, while everybody was hoping to leave the war, the empire, and the defeat behind, and to look forward towards the future, you know, towards a more hopeful future, you had these large numbers of former imperial soldiers, and some of them were still wearing their imperial Japanese Army uniforms when they disembarked the ships, the repatriation ships. Um, and I, in the book, I argue that that's when not only the former imperial soldiers, but the empire itself comes back to Japan that is so eager to forget the empire and to leave it behind. Um, What was worse, some of these former imperial soldiers were chanting now the communist international, were actually shouting slogans and, and saying, this is emperor's territory, this is enemy territory. And that was something that was very difficult to fathom in such a short period of time for, for, for the Japanese society. Um, so that was also another shock and another uh, heartbreaking moment also for the society because kept in this information vacuum of the Soviet Union, kept in isolation, some had turned into communists. Some had been uh, quite willing to um, show their colors uh, when when they came back. And that was... Once again, another challenge to this very fragile order that was that came into into being in in, in war Japan, and that was something that the Japanese society had to really deal with uh, psychologically, if, if if not in any other sense. Um, as Japan moves towards a more prosperous consumer society from the 1960s onwards. You know, Japan is now re-accepted into the United Nations, or accepted, should I say, there was no United Nations before. So uh, Japan becomes a U- UN member. It regains its place. You know, we have 1964, the uh, Olympics, Tokyo Olympics, the first um, games in Asia. Um, and its prestige is growing, but also the prosperity of its citizens is growing. Obviously, the misery and humiliation of the internment um, is not very interesting anymore. Um, Only those you know who survived it and their families were probably still telling the stories. It was no longer an attractive story to tell uh, in in the prosperous consumerist Japan. Uh, It was just easier to forget and to kind of leave it behind. And this changes in the 1980s, as I mentioned. You know, there was this big vogue for remembering and writing up your your war experiences and passing it on to the new generations and specifically after the after the collapse of the Soviet Union Soviet archives reopen enabling historians and for the first time foreign historians to go to to Moscow and to dig up all of these archives and to cast another look at what People could only write uh, based on memoirs and recollections. But but in the period between between uh, the end of the Cold War and the immediate post war, the, the internment was this was was not a very um, fashionable topic, should I say? But also for ideological reasons that that dominate that dominated Cold War Japanese historiography.
1: Thank you. Uh, so, so that's that's a good segue for what, my, what was, what was my, my final question for you before I hand it back to uh, Nicholas. Um, so in the final chapter, that's chapter seven, you recount Siberian internees' struggles for recognition and compensation from the Japanese government in post-war Japan. So how did... The Siberian internees organized in Japan after their return from the USSR. And could you tell us about some of the challenges that they faced in receiving compensation from the Japanese government after their return to Japan?
2: Thank you. Um, another very complex question. And I, in the chapter uh, itself, I try to walk the reader through different stages in which these efforts were um, were made by primarily um the internees themselves. Initially, there were some efforts by the families. Um, and then from the 1950s onward, um, the internees themselves have to take the, the matters into their hands. And most of those efforts were unsuccessful. Even, even the biggest effort that starts in mid-1970s uh, with the uh, Zenyokkyo kyo which was the All-Japan Council for Demanding Compensation for uh, former POWs in the Soviet Union, um, the whole story of uh, their struggle against the Japanese government primarily because with 1956 joint declaration signed by the Soviet Union and Japan, these people, the survivors of, of the internment, had lost any right to sue or to confront the Soviet Union directly. And Soviet Union was obviously the, the, the most obvious perpetrator in this case. And all the problems and all the failures of the movement, you could probably boil down, and I'm mindful of time, I could tell more, but you could probably boil down to the fact that the Japanese government felt that compensating um, internees for their time in Siberia would be accepting responsibility for the Siberian internment. and. Hence, successive Japanese governments were reluctant to provide any kind of compensation. Even in 2010, when a change of government with the DPJ being elected in 2009, when there was finally political will to maybe honor these former soldiers who were in their 80s at the time with some monetary um, with an amount of money, let's uh, let's say let's put it this way, the word compensation was not used, uh, and I think it's it's very important for the Japanese government from the Japanese government perspective because compensate you compensate someone who you owe something to, uh, and the Japanese government position has always been that it was not responsible for the Siberian internment and, and hence it can't really. Uh, compensate, uh, for it. Whereas some of the internees, some of the organizers, uh, of the, uh, uh, the fight, the struggle for, for recognition and compensation, they were always emphasizing that we were still Japanese soldiers on duty and we should be compensated for this. So, uh, once again, that's just one position. There were so many different complex, um, Approaches to this from different groups, and there were many groups which used different methods. In fact, one of the problems, one of the reasons for failure, I could say, was the the, the division within even one big group uh, that was ch- trying to challenge and lobby um, the government to honor the sacrifices of these of the six hundred thousand Japanese. Um, So there was a lot of infighting. There was never one unified front against the government. But even if, had there been a unified front, it's very difficult to see that in the atmosphere of the Cold War or also in taking into consideration the history of Japanese government attitudes to to, um, adjudication of grievances of uh, different groups that arise from, from the war, uh, it was very difficult for uh, for the Siberian attorneys to get any kind of uh, legal recognition or, or compensation that was called compensation. What they received in t- 2010 is called uh, consolation payments, Isharyo in Japanese, uh, which is a euphemistic way of saying that we acknowledge your sacrifices and we respect those sacrifices, but we will not call them compensation. Um, so... I hope this answers the question. I could tell a lot more, but uh, chapter seven goes into into great detail about the struggle, which unfortunately was not very successful for for the internees.
0: So, I want to end our discussion by bringing in the contemporary angle. Now, obviously, we're recording this in the middle of um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia's place in the world, its relations with its neighbors is now um, a big topic in the news. Uh, To kind of bring this over to Japan, you know, Japan has its own territorial disputes with Russia that are itself a byproduct of the Second World War. I guess, how much does the Second World War and then the early Cold War period continue to have repercussions for Russia and Japanese relations today? Um, How does it help us understand, you know, this relationship between these two, you know, very important countries in in global politics?
2: Thank you. It's a very complex question. Um, And to be honest, I would be reluctant to draw any direct parallels between what's happening in Ukraine uh, at the moment and with what happened um, in in with the Siberian internment. Uh, Simply because... uh, that would probably f- fan the flames of, uh, in some quarters, of using um, the internment story as "there you go" kind of story. You know, that's what the Russians do kind of story, and and that would be hugely um, simplistic, um, because you know we shouldn't forget the context of the world of World War II, where the Soviet Union's entry into the war against Japan, however horrible that was, was uh, as part of the Allied. Um, joint effort, whereas what's going on in the Ukraine is completely different these days. So, but you are right, I would really um, emphasize the importance of the Second World War, but also the two other big contexts in which I place the internment, which are the Cold War international system, which emerges from um, World War II, but also some of the legacies that remain unresolved or unsolved. Um legacies of both this, the Second World War and the Cold War in shaping relations, both intergovernmental and intersocietal relations uh, and perceptions in different parts of the world about Russia, about the Soviet Union, uh, but if you are very specific in these two nations uh, mutually uh, about one another. And, and I'm happy to, to to give you a brief overview of how the internment, um, what role internment and its memory plays in this respect. So um, I already talked uh, critically about the territorial dispute. While it is legally very important because it means that Soviet Union and its successor Russia on one hand and Japan on the other hand have not yet signed a peace treaty. So they technically they have established, re-established diplomatic relations in 1956. They have been cooperating in every imaginable sphere. I mean, once again, to set aside what the sanctions uh, that have been um, very recently imposed on Russia, um, the relations have developed um, quite well. You know, you could you could probably say say that, looking at least at the economic side of things. So um, that in itself might be important on paper at least in the sense that these countries are at least on paper still at war however um i think time has come to look at other aspects at at other stories specifically human stories experiences from below if we can tell them not only the stories of of the stalins of the world you know and of the Japanese prime ministers and foreign ministers who are meeting with their Soviet counterparts and arguing about territorial dispute or any other issue, uh, history is much richer and much more uh, interesting in that. And I think one of the reasons why we keep going back to these intergovernmental, um, seemingly big uh, disputes and disagreements is in itself a legacy of the Cold War in which we would talk about um, two main powers, two main superpowers, and everybody else was secondary. In which we would really uh, frame every issue or every historical um, episode within the national framework, because that's what mattered. It mattered which nation you belonged to, and it also mattered because on top of the national framework, you also had this uh, bipolar framework and your nation's place within either one of the one of the camps or as, as a non allied nation often would you know lead to certain ways in which you looked at the world or you, you were taught uh, the history of the world and you even imagined the future. So the, uh, the legacies of, of World War and Cold War are especially important in our thinking, and, and they are there whether we want it or not. And I would really like to, to look at this uh, uh, issue as something that is that is slightly different from what we are used to um, reading or we are used to talking about when we talk about the Cold War. Um, and in a way, uh, within the bilateral relations, even between the governments, the issue has become exactly that. It has become this sad chapter or sad story of um, something that was unfortunate, something that was... Uh, the responsibility of perhaps both sides, although this is rarely acknowledged in history, uh, and something that should be honored or remembered with sadness, and I think for me the best um, uh, manifestation of this is uh, the if 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 we have to stick to the to the politicians, the, the tradition that uh, former Prime Minister Abe Shinzo. Um, started so every time Abe visited uh, the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok, which was an area where a lot of Japanese were kept uh, during the internment, he would go and visit the memorials um, where the at the graves of the, of these Japanese. So uh, this was not something that was heavily politicized by both sides, although they could if if they wanted. And I, I even as a critic of, for example, Abe's government and its decisions, or as a critic of of Russian governments, you could still acknowledge the fact that, unlike some of the unresolved issues that still remain between the two nations or governments, there is an understanding that some unfortunate bits of history deserve our study and deserve our attention, but we should not use each of these issues in in the service of the nation. So... um, I think uh, in that respect, and, and I hope that my book also sheds light on not only the internment itself, but also the broader processes in which nations or other forms of community, a nation for me is just one dominant form of community, resort to history in achieving certain goals and how our knowledge of history is often then limited without our own knowledge, without our own Consciousness of it uh, by these efforts or by these attempts to, um, to write history in a certain way or to, to remember the past in, in, in a certain way. Uh, and I hope that my, my book will help to diversify what's um, available and to diversify the ways in which we consider the complex tectonic changes through which Japan became a, a postwar nation state. But not just japan but also east asia and the broader world in which any nation state was rebuilt its borders redrawn it's its identities reimagined following the one of the most deadliest perhaps the deadliest conflict and i hope it stays that way of world war ii thank you
0: so with that Thank you interview with Shirzad Muminov, author of Eleven Winters of Discontent, The Siberian Internment and the Making of a New Japan. A few final questions for you, Shirzad, actually. Where can people find your work? And what's next for you?
2: Thank you. Um, you can order the Eleven Winters of Discontent from Harvard University Press website. You can just Google Eleven Winters Harvard and... You will probably find that page uh, from your um, results, search results. Um, My other work or my biography uh, can be found on my uh, professional website, which is muminov.net, M-U-M-I-N-O-V.net. And what next question? It's it's a good question. As you know, over the past two years, research, especially research on the ground, and in my case, it's research in, in Japan, uh has been very difficult if not impossible um and some of the research ideas that i have in mind have been waiting for that day in which we can travel to japan obviously another aspect of my research concerns soviet union and travel to russia uh, at this moment is even more difficult if not impossible so um but i but i have interesting ideas f- f- interesting for me at least, Um, one of the aspects of Japan's remaking, as I mentioned, um, as post-war nation, uh, is the legacies that it inadvertently left in its imperial outposts. And one of those imperial outposts is, is the island of Sakhalin. And the southern part of that of that island for, for uh, 40 years was kept by the Japanese, was officially a Japanese colony in Minami Karafuto, Southern Sakhalin. And when handed over to the Soviets in 1945, it was perhaps the most unique of all the areas from which the Japanese were taken into the Soviet Union in the sense that it was a Japanese territory which changed hands and suddenly became Soviet territory after the war. And I'm very interested in, the Sovietization of that area, of all the efforts from the Soviet side and some cooperation from some of the local Japanese who who had to remain for some time and not just Japanese ethnically, Japanese imperial subjects, among whom there were about 20,000, 23,000 to be precise, ethnic Koreans who had been um, either traveled themselves or taken uh, by uh, different imperial agencies to... Um, colonize and to um develop those areas that develop the, the the abundant resources of of um southern sakhalin the coal and oil and fisheries and many other resources and that is one of the projects that i'm really thinking about um without being able to actually go to to either sakhalin or to japan um so but i will continue i think one thing that i'm i'm very interested in is the challenges that Soviet Union and Japan separately um, put forward uh, or the challenges that these two nations actually um, posed to the global order of, of in the aftermath of the First World War and especially in the aftermath of the Second World War, the remaking of these nations as a result of these two uh, global conflicts remains the big theme in which I'm interested and I will continue to work uh, with different um, uh, with archives and other primary sources in different languages in primarily Russian and Japanese and English in writing the stories of uh, East Asia's uh, remaking east of, of big processes of East Asia's uh, remaking in the way that we know it today.
0: So, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to ageviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find counter author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Shatran Jay, where can people find you?
1: So you can follow me on Twitter, uh, my first name, shatranjay1412, or you can find my uh, profile on the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of History website, um, where you can also find my uh, email, um, mall2 at wist.edu, and you can also find my other interviews uh, for the New Books Network on the New Books Network website.
0: Um, The Asia Free Books podcast is on all our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for info who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Shirzad, for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Nicholas and Shatun Jay, for having me. It was a great pleasure to talk to you.